welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. And welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast, episode number 84. 84, how cool is that? We're at a stage now where I have to check the actual episode number before I read it out, eh? Fancy that. Anyway, this is episode number 84, and my guest this week is Chris Young, who is a former social worker, but is now a mental health campaigner, an author, and the host of the Walk a Mile in My Shoes podcast. And Chris has got a really fascinating but very complex story but basically he grew up in a very traumatic environment and is also a survivor of abuse and these things would really impact his mental health as he grew older but they would also instill in him a real passion and a desire to help and support other people who had been through similar things that he'd been through and that led him to become a social worker and he did this for a long time it was his ideal job his ideal career but he would eventually have to leave because of the problems that he was having with his mental health and he was eventually diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. While he was figuring all that out, he decided to walk around the edge of the UK to raise awareness for mental illness. And he chose the edge of the country to represent the edge of society where many people with mental health problems feel they are. And he undertook his walk without any money, relying completely on the kindness of strangers. And that's exactly what we talk about in this episode. We talk about Chris's experiences as a social worker, which really was fascinating because I've spoken to a lot of people who work in some sort of healthcare setting. And I speak to a lot of people who are patients in some sort of healthcare setting. I've even spoken to a few who are both, but I don't think I've spoken to anyone else who was both at the same time. And that gives Chris a really interesting insight into both sides of the coin. And it's a very important part of the conversation because essentially Chris was working in a system that is designed to help people who might be struggling with a mental illness, and yet it wasn't able to support him when he was struggling with a mental illness. But we chat all about that in the episode. We talk a lot about BPD because it's one of the most stigmatized areas of the mental health and mental illness conversation. And there's a lot of prejudice around BPD. And some of that seems to stem from the system as well. So I think it's very important that we talk about it. And this episode is kind of an episode of two halves, really, in a couple of different ways. So in the first half of the episodes, we talk about BPD. What is it? Where does this stigma come from? And we talk about some of the problems that Chris experienced getting diagnosed in the first place, some of the problems he had with the medication and some of the problems that he saw when he was working as a social worker and the people he was working for weren't able to accommodate his mental illness. The second half of the conversation is all about his walk around the edge of the UK, the people he met on the way and some of his experiences. And that was just lovely to hear some of the stories from that walk. It really does restore a faith in humanity and rather than waiting for people to engage in this conversation Chris took the conversation to other people and asked them to engage and some of the things that he learned along the way were absolutely lovely but also halfway through this conversation as we start to talk about Chris's war the sound just completely dropped out and it took us about 10 or 15 minutes of messaging each other and typing into our phones and holding them up into the screen and trying to figure it all out to get things up and running obviously I've cut that bit out but Chris had to change mics halfway through so the first half sounds like one thing and the second half sounds like a completely different conversation. I assure you there's nothing wrong with your headphones. 
we just had to swap a microphone halfway through. Chris has a wonderful podcast. It's called Walk a Mile in My Shoes, and you can get that on all podcast platforms. There is also a Facebook group where you can connect with other people and talk about all these different things around Chris's podcast. And there's a really engaged community attached to that group. I think there's about 1,500 of them in that Facebook group. And if you'd like to join... There's a link in the episode notes. I'd also highly recommend Chris's book. It's called Walk a Mile, Tales of a Wandering Loon. And you can get that in all good bookshops. We do talk about Chris's upbringing and we do talk about some of the trauma that he was exposed to, but we kind of touch on it in context of the wider conversation. And if you want to know more about Chris's upbringing and some of the things that happened to him and some of the experiences that he had, it's all documented in that book. And it's a wonderful read. It's not always an easy read, but it's a wonderful read. And Chris is a wonderful guy. It was great to chat to him. He's really funny. He's really engaging. He really, really cares about this stuff. That was what came across really from our conversation is how much he cares about having these type of conversations. And it was a real pleasure to speak to him. This intro has gone on for a bit, so I'm not going to do all the stuff about me. You know where to find me. You know where to listen. I'd love you to leave me a review. And this is episode 84 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Chris Young. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. Here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest today is Mr. Chris Young. How are you, mate? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me on. Oh, mate, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's um, really, really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this one, mate. I've been reading your book. All right. God bless your socks. Oh, mate. And um, yeah, it's lovely. And I, I, can't wait to, I can't wait to talk about it. Um, I was trying to think of the best way to, the best place and the best way to jump in, Chris, you know, because it's uh, your tale is <laughs> yeah. quite a tale. Um, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> but what what I thought would be useful, particularly, you know, for people listening, is if we could start by having a bit of a chat about BPD. Okay, because okay. Um, obviously every individual person who has a diagnosis of BPD, their experience yeah, is yeah. different. So we're going to have to talk in quite sort of broad terms, I would assume. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think... You know, from the reading I've done and from previous people I've spoke to on this podcast, it seems to be one of the most um, misunderstood uh, diagnosis from all yeah. sides. So yeah, from yeah. The, the professional sides and the people who are who are dealing with it, right? It's it's a mess is is what it is. I remember when I, I got, I would say I'm not going to, I'm not going to call it a diagnosis because I don't believe it's a diagnosis. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to call it a label. Um, and I was given the label in 2007 by a psychiatrist, and it was a, a great relief to me at the time because uh, I'd been misdiagnosed with uh, anxiety and depression, and uh, for years since since my my twenties, and and that never really seemed to fit. You know, it didn't describe my what was going on for me. Um, when my psychiatrist said, I, "I think you have borderline personality disorder." It felt a closer fit, but but I hadn't even even though I'd been a social worker for for near on twenty years, I don't think I really fully appreciated the amount. I'm not I'm not going to call it stigma. <laughs> you find me saying that I'm not going to call things certain things. I'm not going to call it stigma because it's prejudice, and there is a huge amount of the of prejudice against people with the label of borderline personality disorder in fact any personality disorder but I, I wasn't really thinking about that at the time I was thinking thank fuck I've been given a diagnosis 
which acknowledges uh, what's going on for me. So I think because there are so many different criteria for borderline personality disorder, it all, to my mind, it almost makes the, the, the diagnosis meaningless because there, there's so many different ways it, it can be diagnosed that it, 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 I don't know, it, it, it's a huge umbrella term that, that, that captures an awful lot of people. It, one of the interesting things was when I was first given the, the label by my psychiatrist, as anybody who, who's given any diagnosis does, you, you, you go immediately to Dr. Google. Dr. Google told me, apart from everybody now hates me, apart from, apart from that, the, uh, I found that there was a, a group of people meeting up regularly in Edinburgh with the label. And I thought, this is great. So people with a, a sort of similar lived experience to me meeting up in a supportive way, what, what's, what not to like. So I told my psychiatrist this. She responded by saying, uh, you mustn't meet up with these people. These are very sick people. And I remember thinking, hey, I resemble that remark. And thinking, you know, this is, a, this is the, the, the prejudice that we're dealing with. Somehow she didn't acknowledge she was talking about me. Uh, she was somehow talking about, I don't, I don't know, some other scary monster that is somebody with uh, this, this terrible condition that, that somehow we're going to do something awful to people. So, you know, immediately with the label comes free the prejudice that we are attention-seeking, manipulative, liars, we're dangerous, we're, we're <clears throat> not to be trusted. I mean, if you look at almost any episode of Criminal Minds, it's usually me that did it. You know, but that's that's the that's the world we're, we're living in. So, I don't know if you know the background of the construct. Um, the I think it was the '60s, might be the '50s, that, that there was some psychiatrist who psychiatry was sitting with 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 two notions that we we have neurosis and psychosis. And neurosis are th things like your know, depressions, that sort of thing. Psychosis are like your know, schizoaffective disorders, that kind of thing. And yet there were there were a group of people who willfully sat in between the two on the borderline. So that's where we are. And that's how borderline came about. Uh, the number of professionals I've actually spoken to who believe that borderline means you've nearly got a personality disorder is arse-clenchingly uncomfortable. But you know th 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 these people exist and they shouldn't because they, if they're going to be working with people with the label, they, they should at least know uh, where the, the label came from. So I don't think I don't think the labels are useful one, especially given the fact that around about eighty percent of people who have the label have experienced some kind of childhood trauma, whether it be bereavement, whether it be physical abuse, neglect, or um, sexual abuse. They, they've experienced something like that. It wasn't a very straightforward answer, was it? It sort of took, took you off on a weird sort of. Uh, rambling journey of, of, of what it is but I think the the, the alarming thing is it, with the international classification of diseases the uh, they, they they could have removed the whole personality disorder thing altogether but uh, it, because you know it, it's unscientific it it lacks validation it lacks validity it, it lacks reliability but instead of of moving on from it they, they doubled down so we've got uh, mild, medium, and severe personality disorder, uh, and what that means is gatekeeping. 
So the way it looks like to me, and, and I'll be gobsmacked if it turns out to be otherwise, is if you are somebody diagnosed with medium, sorry, with moderate or severe personality disorder, you'll get a service. If you get mild, you're fucked. They, they've also developed a, a whole new, even less scientific insult, which is uh, called personality difficulty, which although they say is a, it's, it's not a, a, a clinical diagnosis, it's something that appears in your medical notes and it's written by a psychiatrist. So it's only not a medical diagnosis in a, I don't know, in the most sort of slighted terms. I mean, are, are you as a medical professional going to be scrolling through somebody's notes and go, yeah, that, that's obviously not, not a clinical diagnosis? Even if it had big red letters around it saying not a clinical diagnosis, you would be thinking, well, what the fuck's it doing here? You know, why, why is it in somebody's medical notes? The, problem, the other problem with these levels, the moderate, mild, moderate and severe, is that they're based on a person's behavior. And the behavior is sort of classified in terms of danger to self or others, which basically means self-harm, suicidal ideation. Um, it, those, are, those are the big ones. Now, I know there have been times when I've been particularly bad when, say, if I was in the, the moderate range and I knew I was more likely to get a service if I was in the severe range, then it wouldn't take much for me to slightly up my self-harming game. And I'm sure I'm not the only person in that situation because services are so sparse. People are absolutely desperate. Crazy times. The, the system, you know, from, from the head up is, is a fucking mess. Yeah, it really sounds like the, yeah, a mess is the best way to describe it, Chris. You know, mm. like the the complexity and the nuance. And yeah, I mean, if the people that, it's hard enough kind of realizing that you need help and going to help and getting help. These all things are hard, but then when the people that are supposed to be helping aren't helping and they don't understand yeah. it either. Yeah. That's, um, that's tough, right? That's, uh, that's confusing stuff. And it, there seems to be so much like so much overlap with other, other things, you know? So you mentioned yeah. the, the like diagnosis, um, label scenario there and i don't know i suppose it's that need to kind of like put people in boxes to say you are this and because yeah, you yeah. said you are this then these are all the things that are going to happen but human beings whether they have a mental illness or not do not work like that right <laughs> like it's just not yeah, how but, it is but the systems do and we sort of pretend that, it, that the, these things are client focused when, when actual fact they are completely system focused so they have to put us in boxes because the funding is attached to a personality disorder service, a bipolar service, eating disorder service. They've created these artificial silos uh, and, and that just doesn't serve people at all. Yeah. Do you think it's because like people just can't make sense of BPD? Like the, the, there's just not like an understanding, like, you know, from the, the medical point of view or from the support system point of view, do you think that is just not enough like research done, not enough knowledge or like why the... There's, there's just confusion right. on all sides, isn't there? I think um, I, when I was working as a social worker, I, I, I worked with a number of people with a, a label of borderline personality disorder. The thing that causes professional anxiety for me um, at, at the time where I saw myself as a great social worker. I saw myself as in, being able to engage with people and uh, I want to see things from people's 
perspectives and I wanted to, to, to support them in any way I could. And so the, the outcome was driven by them and we, we'd get to a point where everybody would be happy and then we'd all sit around and sing Kumbaya at the end. The problem was that because a number of these people had been, first of all, damaged by the growing up environment and then subsequently by the existing prejudice in inherent in various systems from social work to psychiatry to the Department of Work and Pensions to housing to fucking everything, strangely enough, didn't meet me with a warm embrace. They met me with mistrust. They they didn't believe me when I was I'd say I do this or that. I wasn't accustomed to that. So that that was incredibly difficult as a, as a professional. And you know you you also do your normal work and try and set up whatever care you felt you'd agreed on, only to find that perhaps this wasn't what they wanted, that the, the person I was working with wanted because of whatever complexity in the relationship. And you know, social workers are being asked to work with people in, in less and less time. If you're working with somebody with a label of personality disorder, you need to take absolute time to, to build a relationship, to develop trust, and only then will, will you both get a satisfactory outcome because this person has been damaged, like I said, by their environment and by you. You know, by, you know, iatrogenic harm is, is real and it's today. And, you know, the other thing that people are damaged by are the, the medications that they're given. I mean, I can talk about my, my own experience. When I was diagnosed with, with uh, personality disorder, I was given a, an antipsychotic uh, called um, quetiapine. My psychiatrist told me not to drink grapefruit juice with it, uh, but that was the only side effect. You know, it, 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 it'd have some kind of bad effect on me if I drank grapefruit juice. This was at the time when in the United States, there was a class action being taken out against uh, AstraZeneca because quetiapine uh, increased the risk significantly for people to develop type 2 diabetes. And they paid out something like half a billion dollars in, in that, that lawsuit. So either my psychiatrist didn't know that was happening, which isn't good enough, or she did know it was happening and she didn't discuss it with me. You know, here I am years later, I have your type 2 diabetes. Uh, I've got to say, I'm fucking delighted, by which I mean, I'm not. People aren't warned about this. Then Neither are they warned about increased chance of, of putting on a lot of weight, not just a small amount of weight, a lot of weight. I mean, in the time that I've been taking quetiapine, uh, I put on seven stone. Uh, that was over 15 years, but I put on seven stone, which, you know, is shit. You know, it's, it, it, you, 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 the way you view yourself is... is it, 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 it can have quite a, a devastating effect. And I'm fairly sure that that might have contributed to the development of type 2 diabetes. But again, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only person that this has happened to. Now, I'm not anti-medication by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know if I'd be here today had it not been for quetiapine or a drug like it. Because I, when she started giving me the medication, I was fucking mental. I, I was self-harming like uh, it was going out of fashion. My suicidal ideation was incredibly powerful. You know, every day, you know, felt like the last day. 
it felt like I was being held by a terrorist and I was the terrorist. You know, it was it was terrifying. I mean, I still get days like that now, but but it's 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 greatly reduced. But I think it's time that psychiatry kind of came clean on these drugs. Quetiapine for me, and I'm sure again for lots of people like me, is an incredibly good painkiller. It really dulled the emotional pain. But the amount of quetiapine I was taking, I, I lost four hours a day because of it. It helped me sleep, which was really good because at, at the time, there were times when I'd stay awake for uh, six days at a time. And after being awake for six days at a time, I got to say I was quite mad. Anyway, I think it's important to acknowledge the short, that short term, in the short term, it helped me. In the long term, it nearly fucking killed me. Uh, and I think it's important that there doesn't seem to be anywhere where psychiatrists ha- have the, the proper know-how of how to wean people off antipsychotics. You know, it seems to be a sort of fire and forget kind of medication. We'll put you on it. And then when you start saying, you know, I'd really like to come off it, they fucking shit themselves. They, they, they say, well, uh, well, have you tried this? Uh, instead of coming off it, why not try this and this and this? No, no why? Why? How are you suddenly I'm in the position of the person with personality disorder that I was working with all those years ago? You know, how can I trust you? Because this has caused me a huge amount of harm. And, uh, you know, I'd much rather just make my own way, thanks. And making my own way means I did eventually, I came off quetiapine last year, thanks to uh, work with a really great counsellor. It took a long time, Uh, it took a good six months to come off it. I think my my behaviour is what isn't what you could call chronocentric now i can sleep for a maximum of three hours so i have i sleep basically twice a day for three hours so i'm, I'm essentially spanish now that's the so, one definitely a side effect they didn't warn you about chris is that you'll be uh you'll be spanish yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh mate that's tickled me um, you mentioned that your um your your work as a social worker and i found that, yeah. that really interesting about your your story because you know you were in you were you were trained and you were working with people and you were helping people but then yeah. as part of that that journey you were um you were not well at that time right so there was kind of That's like true. um yes yeah, so you were like on on both sides of the of the system i suppose all at the same time which must have been it was, it, it was difficult um and and also you know the, the the managers i had at the time out of four managers five managers i i remember one was excellent the others were ill-informed i mean the the the, the last manager i had when when i finally got unceremoniously dumped by social work he he uttered the famous words but chris you're too nice to have borderline personality disorder fuck <laughs> it's like saying to somebody you're too nice to have cancer but yeah uh, it, it it was difficult because you know i would I would have periods off work and having periods of work is, is a thorn in the side of, of your colleagues, you know, because they have to pick up the work that you were doing. Your managers have to find places for your, the people that you've been working with. Often they wouldn't bother their asses. You know, you, you'd come back after being off for three months uh, to find that, you know, that somebody's situation had become much, much worse had you, you know, had you been around. So that was, that was difficult. And it's very difficult not to internalize that and blame yourself because you think, well, why can't I just be fucking normal? These people's lives would be much better, you know, if I was just a normal social worker who was able to go to work, be at work, just like my colleagues. Okay, they'd be off with the flu or whatever, but they they wouldn't ever take a, a chunk of time off work that was 
sort of three months or, or, or anything like that. I mean, but my, my GP tried to manage it using antidepressants. And I think once you've got a, a sort of a notion that, that your know, medication is going to help people, if a hammer is the only tool you've got, everything is a fucking nail. I was, I was a nail and antidepressants were the... Were, were the only tool that my uh, uh, GP had. Yeah, I suppose it's like, I suppose if you can't trust the system and mm. you've grown up in that traumatic environment where like trust is going to be a real issue, you know, trust's a massive yeah. part of the thing. And then you're going into a system with trust issues and into a system you can't trust, then it's just like, it's just such a hard, um, hard place to be, isn't it? Such a really hard, yeah. hard yeah, spot yeah. to be in. Yeah. Was it kind of like that experience sort of seeing seeing the system from the inside and the outside is that where you started to kind of lose um faith in it because you kind of you went into social work quite sort of like wide-eyed compassionate like yeah, a, like so. a like a, a need so. to help others that's what came across from reading your your book yeah then, yeah like, yeah um the fact that you know it felt like nobody was there to support me when i when i was younger i, I really felt like you know I wanted to be there for for people when they had nobody else, yeah. and, and it was really that that, that simple. And, and maybe by saving them, I was saving myself. I think that's probably the easiest way to, to describe it. Yeah, I mean that's such a, a like a in a way a common thing, you know. Like people who have been poorly, um, yeah, it, it makes you really compassionate. You know, when you get to yeah, a, yeah. A, a point where you feel like you can hold space in some way for other people, then. Um, you know, you just kind of want to want to be there for others in some in some way, shape, right. or form, isn't it? That's like a really yeah, yeah, uh, compassionate thing. Absolutely. It sounds like you kind of found that after the after leaving social work by um popping on your walking shoes, mate. Where did the idea to undergo your your walk? Let's let's, well, let's get into that. I waited two years for really good group psychotherapy. Group psychotherapy done well. You know, it is a fucking great thing. I, I remember when I, I was lined up for it, uh, I got told that I'd be good for group psychotherapy. And I remember saying to the, the assessing psychotherapist, I want a psychotherapist of my very own. I don't I don't want to share you. What are you talking about? And she said, well, if you imagine having one psychotherapist is a lot like looking into one mirror. Group psychotherapy is like looking into lots of mirrors. And I really liked that. I thought that 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 suited me really well. So that was that was really useful for me. So we talked about in in therapy we talked about you know how my mum died when when i was 12 from cervical cancer we talked about how my dad hit the bottle and he was utterly spent it was it was, it was a real tragedy that we we not only we lost mum then we, we we lost my dad then as well and he he'd fought in the second world war and he'd seen some absolute atrocities you know we we hadn't realized that mum had been his handler that she had looked after him and sort of guided him through life and and made him a really happy man. And then when she had been pulled away from him, suddenly he just fell to pieces. Being British, people don't want to know other people's business. They don't want to support you. They don't want to, you know, they'll they'll go about tutting and say, you know, it's terrible, this, the state of the house. I mean, our house looked like something out of a Channel 5 documentary, you know, where the narrator speaks in hushed tones, you know, talking about cat shit around the house and uh, a disgusting smell and nicotine stained walls and windows and you know, a garden that hasn't been looked after for a decade. We were able to talk about all these things in, in group psychotherapy. And then gradually, as we, as we got to the, the end of it, I was thinking, I need to do something. I, you know, and I, I think I can't go back to social work 
because by this time I'd got to know what was going on for me. And one of the big problems for me then and uh, and carries on to this day is I dissociate. Now, dissociation is something that happens it, it, at, at the worst. It, it happens two thirds of the time. Currently, it's happening quarter of the time. But it, essentially, it's my body removes itself. My mind removes me from any situations. It's a kind of overzealous uh, sort of protective mechanism, like I say, to cushion me against the outside world and and all the vagaries of it. Cognitively, at these times, I know the world exists. Cognitively, I know this computer exists. I know my hand exists. But emotionally, I know the world doesn't exist. And at most times, emotionally trumps cognitively. I get to the point where I completely believe that nothing exists outside my head, that nothing is real. So my my wife will know that I, I'm beginning to dissociate because I'll do things like I'll start looking at my hand and, and I'm, t- I'm trying to work out whether my hand's real. And if my hand's not real, if I'm not real, what chance have you got? So I thought I can't go back to social work in, in that, in all honesty, knowing that this is going on now that we've We've taken the time to fully explore it. So, so what do we do? And I thought, well, right. There was an organisation in uh, Scotland called Penumbra, and Penumbra a mental health organisation. And a Penumbra is the light part of the shadow around the edge. the The idea of that is that, is that many people with mental health problems feel they're on the edge of society. So, as a sort of exaggerated metaphor. I thought it'd be great to walk around the edge of the UK to highlight the experience of people with mental health problems. Before I did, a couple of my friends, uh, Jim and Maggie, took me aside and said, right, you can't do this until you read a book by Satish Kumar, a book called No Destination. And in it, Satish Kumar, who was a Jain monk, describes how he went on a peace march uh, in the 1960s. And he, his guru said to him, look, this peace march is all well and good, but you can't take any money with you. And he said, why? He said, well, at the end of the day, you won't have the motivation to talk to people. And the only people at the end of the day you'll be meeting will be hoteliers. So you can't. And he didn't. I thought if this man could walk from India into Pakistan while the two countries were at war, expect and receive really great hospitality, I thought, surely I could do that around this this lovely country of ours. So I left Edinburgh with, with a rucksack with a tent in it and, and some super noodles and some peanut M&Ms and plenty of water. <laughs> a little envelope from my, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife of five years, wrapped up in a little note. And the note, so there's five pounds in this little wrapped up note that says, said, Jim made me do it. Basically, I, you know, I was going with no money, but she, she, for some reason, she thought this five pounds would save my bacon. It would have saved my bacon had I known it was there. Well, actually, it wouldn't have saved my bacon, but it was there and it was just a lovely lovely thought right from day one people were fantastic not not 70 percent of people not 80 percent of people 100 percent of the people i met were absolutely brilliant they helped me all the way around whether it be by giving me a few kind words or giving me a peanut butter sandwich or um putting me up in their family home for two weeks everything from from there so right from the beginning i was thinking this is much better than i expected i mean my, my one one of the big reasons for, for for doing the walk as well is that organizations like mine are very good at reaching out to people who already want to be reached out to so they're they're, they're leaning against an open door whereas i was meeting up with people who 
claim to have never spoken about mental health in their entire lives. And then suddenly they were speaking to this guy who looked like a bouncer in a skirt. Uh, it was just sort of walking around the place, talking openly and honestly about the, his situation. And it just seemed to open the door to to, to them. And, and people were just absolutely brilliant. Can I give you one example? Yes, Which please. Kind of yeah. Thumbs up sums up the, the, the whole event for me. And uh, I, I was on the coast. Uh, I was always on the coast. I mean, a lot of people take the piss out of me because uh, they, they know my map reading abilities are zero. So they, they thought I was walking around the edge of the UK because I couldn't lose the edge of the UK. You know, keep Makes the sea to my right. I mean, I lost the sea on the second day, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. Anyway, I was walking towards Inverness along a beautiful part of the Scottish coastline called the, the Murray Firth. And I was approaching, I was about eight miles away from a little village called Crimmond. And this guy sort of grew, drew level to me in his car. I was carrying a rucksack at the time. And he basically said, I'm going to give you a lift. Uh, so I told him my story and I basically said, no, you're not. <clears throat> and he went, right. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm aiming at Crimmond. He went, right. I live in Crimmond. I'll, I'll maybe see you there. Now, in Scotland, they have this wonderful thing called the right to roam, which essentially means there's no such thing as trespass. The only trespass that, that exists is in nuclear power stations and on the railway. But other than that, you can do what you like. The, the, the crime is criminal damage. So if you damage a place by going through it or, or putting your tent upon it, then that's, criminal, that, that's you breaking the law. But if you don't, then no, no crime has been committed. So... I'm wandering around Scotland thinking, what a wonderful, wonderful world. So anyway, this guy, Kenny, said, I'll see you in Crimmond. I kind of crawled into Crimmond. It was, it was slightly uphill when I was carrying a sort of... For somebody who's... Satish Kumar carried with him a bowl and a spoon and a pair of glasses, right? And that's it. I carried a 30-kilogram rucksack. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck I was carrying, but somehow I was carrying a 30-kilogram so I crawled into, into Crimmins. So this, this guy is sort of waiting for me. And he said, so what do you do now? I said, well, you know, sometimes I have donations and I'll put myself up in a, a bed and breakfast. Sometimes I'll, uh, I'll, I can put my tent up, you know, wherever I like, as long as it, the, the, I think the law is, as long as it's more than 20 meters away from somebody's house, then you're fine. Uh, I, I said, but sometimes people invite me into their homes, you know, nodding enthusiastically. And he sort of looked at me and went, uh, I, my house is really small. He said, but, he said, you can put your tent up in my garden and then I'll make you some, something for tea. How does that sound? And it's at that point, you have to pinch yourself because you think, this guy doesn't know me from Adam. I am a self-professed crazy person, as seen on, on Criminal Minds, and he's inviting me into his home to give me tea. So I put my tent up in his garden and it was all very lovely. And uh, he, we, we had fish fingers and chips for tea. I, I was blogging as I was going. And, and, and during one of my blogs, I'd, I'd become quite judgmental because my, uh, my brother had recently got himself a, a 40 inch plasma TV. And I'd written something really wanky like, uh, well, you want to get outside in the world. You know, it, it's in surround sound. It's in... It's in high definition, blah, blah, fucking blah. So I went into Kenny's house and he had a 40-inch plasma TV in his house. I hadn't seen a TV for fucking weeks. So, you know, he's trying to talk to me. And I'm going, moving pictures in a box, fantastic. 
So he did get some words out of me. I think we managed to turn the TV off or peel me away from it. Uh, but it was lovely. We, we just had this lovely chat and we kind of got on like, you know, old friends. So, you know, it came to the night came to an end and I, I went off to my, my tent and just thinking what a wonderful world this is and just how kind people were. And then seven o'clock in the morning came, there was a little knock on my tent and uh, this guy, Kenny said, listen, I've made you tea and toast. I have to go to work now. I'm going to leave you, but it's been great. Thanks ever so much for just, you know, allowing me to be part of this. And I, I thought, yeah, that's, that's brilliant. Uh, it's, it's been really lovely. So off he went. I'm sitting with my tea. So I was, I was, uh, so I'd wave Kenny off thinking what a marvellous world we lived in. And uh, it was then I realised that I wasn't actually in Kenny's garden. In Scotland, they have communal drying areas for clothes. And uh, I, I was in a communal drying area. I was nowhere near his back door, but I was about six feet away from his next door neighbour's back door. Now, to give the listeners some kind of notion as to what I am, I, I, I do look like a bouncer in a skirt. You know, I wear a kilt. And, you know, I'm a big burly guy and I don't think many people would rejoice at finding me in their back garden. You know, most people would reach for the blunderbuss, phone the police, anything like that. So I'm thinking, shit, I need to get out of here really quickly. So I'm trying to pack things away in my bag. I'm trying to you know, make a run for it. And this woman who's in her mid 60s opens her door and I'm thinking she looks a bit grumpy. And I'm thinking, you know, why wouldn't she look grumpy? There's this guy in a garden. Uh, so I started babbling and I said, look, I'm really sorry. Kenny said it'd be OK for me to camp here. I'll be gone in no time at all. Let's pretend this never happened. And she went, what are you talking about? I said, Kenny, your next to neighbour said it'd be OK. And she went, she said, listen, I'm not interested in any of that. She said, I've run you a bath. I was wondering if you wanted any bubbles in it. <laughs> what? Yes, yes, a bath would be fantastic. And just please, bubbles would be really nice. So, wow. so I went and had my my bath with with bubbles, and uh, to be really honest, my second breakfast. I said to this woman, as 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 many people would say, "What on earth are you doing?" And, and she said, "Well, she'd been camping before, and um, the thing that she'd missed most was a bath. So she thought I'd be no different." I'm thinking, "That's not the point. <laughs> 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 I'm a bloke you've just found in your garden." <laughs> <laughs> Mate, that's lovely, but, huh? Whether or not I'm missing having a bath is that, that's completely superfluous. The, the, the issue is, uh, and she said, well, basically said the world's a less dangerous place than than you think it is. And we and we got talking about her, and we I, and she was just she couldn't see that other people wouldn't have done that. She found it very difficult, and you know she was a thoughtful, intelligent woman, and and she just thought that that's what you do. That was the the correct response. She was a Liverpudlian, which was uh, I don't know added to the the, the surrealness of the situation. And uh, she she told me she'd um, she'd been looking after a friend of hers who who'd recently died. So um, she said, so I'm I'm finished caring for folk now. Oh, you've just get run a bath for a complete stranger. I don't, it's in your blood. I don't think <laughs> it, it's, it's what you do. It's your, it's your modus operandi. Yeah. You know, that is, it's who you are. So she, yeah. So that was, that was this wonderful, wonderful woman. Her name was Berenice. She was just an incredible woman. But that sort of thing happened all the time, this gratuitous kindness. I met somebody on the Wirral. I was looking for somewhere to stick my tent up. It was, oh, I was in the semi-darkness. This young woman came up to me, said, what are you doing? 
And I, I said, we gave her a sort of brief sort of summary of what was happening. And she went, well, I've got a spare room. I went, can we start with some basics? Like, hi, my name's Chris. <laughs> so she'd offered me a room in her house without even, and that's what people are like. You give people the opportunity to be kind and fabulous and, and be all these, these wonderful things that you imagine people in the UK to be. And it comes at you in spades. It's not bizarre because, I, you know, to be perfectly honest, it's, it's what I believed would happen because I, I, I believe that people are intrinsically fantastic and kind and we're, we're social creatures and we want to support each other and love each other. And that came clear as I, I went around. It was, re- it was really funny as I walked out of Scotland, the Scots said to me, you've got to watch out for the English. They're a tight bunch of bastards. So um, I found out that the English weren't indeed a tight bunch of bastards, but the English uh, told me that the uh, I had to watch out for the Welsh because they really didn't like the English, uh, especially Welsh farmers. And the very first Welsh farmer I met said to me, it's a really hot day, isn't it? I went, yeah, it is. He said, too hot for this sort of thing. I said, yeah, it is a bit too hot. And he went, I've got a a sort of stationary caravan out the back there. It's got a shower in it and a colour TV. Um, are you what? Would you normally watch the World Cup while it's on? No, I'm, yeah. He said, well, it's yours. He said, we have tea about 6.30. How's that? He said, I'm going to be busy today, but, you know, I'll catch up with you at tea time. I went, you're one of those mean Welsh farmers I was warned about. <laughs> Isn't that lovely, though? Isn't that yeah. lovely? And interesting to me, actually, I live on the Wirral and I'm Welsh. So you just mentioned like my yeah. two uh, my two favourite oh, places in the world. The Wirral is that. beautiful, really beautiful, beautiful, beautiful part of the world. Yeah. Did that kind of, you know, because you mentioned there that that's what you expected to happen. Yeah. Was that that must have been extra nice to have that kind of like your own beliefs confirmed to yourself after spending time previous to that coming through a, a system where people like maybe weren't looked after and maybe there was lacking that compassion and um you know to kind of yeah, yeah, yeah sometimes we can the stuff that's around us we can't i don't want to use a more cliched expression but we can't see the wood for the trees right yeah, yeah, we start yeah, to yeah. see the whole world with the same brush as our small yeah, around it yeah. and then you get out there with real people in real lives doing real things and realize hang on a minute not everything is broken it's just this small thing that's broken it was interesting that while I was having therapy, I, I, I got asked to be on a, a study for people with the label of personality disorder. And one of the tests that I was given was uh, a simple computer screen uh, with a, a number of images, photographs of people's faces coming up. And all I had to do was press a button that said trust or not trust. So of 100 images that came up, and, and I want to be authentic for this study, you know, I, because at the time I was very keen for any research to be done that that, that 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 could somehow move the conversation on a bit. So there it was in front of this computer, 100 faces came up, 100 out of 100 I didn't trust, 100 out of 100. I pressed that I trusted a little old lady because I didn't want to seem like a complete fucking crackpot, but I didn't trust her either. So I went from that to really fighting it and go, fuck it, you know, that 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 perspective is whether it's cultural, whether it's something that I've that I, that's gradually become part of my core beliefs of of who I am, but but I don't want it. You know, I, I I don't want to be that. I I want to get out there. I want to trust people. I want to love people, and I want to demonstrate to other people that people are trustworthy and kind and lovely. And 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 I think I did that. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, and I think it's really um, important to 
to mention as well that like this was a few years ago chris right so yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, the mental health conversation has obviously in the last few years it come on leap and bounds and whatever you know problems there yeah, are with yeah, it yeah. but like go back a few years it wasn't as uh, commonplace as it is now and there's, yeah. there is always certain aspects of mental illness that are um for want of a better expression a bit more palatable you know the, yeah, the post yeah. the children of the conversation as well so yeah, i think yeah. to have that positive response a few years ago when we're talking about a mental illness rather than kind of a mental ill health you know yeah, um, yeah it's yeah. like that was incredible as well i think how people just kind of like just took you on on face value regardless of what was going on inside your head at the time you know media outlets weren't that interested weirdly the super sensational soraway sun uh, in scotland got behind it i know that the sun in liverpool is a completely where it doesn't exist I, I had this conversation with this guy and i was thinking i'm selling myself to the devil here you know what, what the fuck am i doing and he, he said uh, we're not like the english sun and this guy walked with me for a day and they weren't like the english sun he gave me a, a two-page spread in the in the sun, and the the photographer. We were we were talking about putting my phone number on on the on the piece, and uh, the the photographer said, um, you, "You don't want to put your phone number on it. You just get phone phoned up by nutters." And I said, "That's exactly what I want." <laughs> <laughs> you're fanny so these are my people yeah yeah, yeah. so uh that was great and, and i was able to demonstrate to him just how brilliant people were at the, at the time we we went into a, a pub on the east coast uh, of scotland and and he just sat in the background so we didn't come in together he came in after me because i think there was a bit of him that that didn't really believe that people were as brilliant as as all that so i went into this pub and told my story to the bar uh, the barmaid and she um, fell over herself to support me suddenly I had sandwiches lager shandies all on the house she phoned up the guy who owned the hotel saying it'd be great if we could open up some of the bedrooms because it'd be good to give him a bed and a shower for the night but that turned out not to be possible but you could see this sun reporter going fucking hell because <laughs> I think he'd grown up in a world where he thought people are just horrible, you know, and, and the, you know, people would go nutter. <laughs> and, and this this woman who is like everybody else I met on the road just fell, like I say, fell over herself to, to support me. So, you know, it, it, it's a story that, you know, we all need to be talking about, but we need to be talking about it in meaningful ways. We need to be engaging with each other. We need to be talking about the absolute abject lack of services. You know, we need to be doing all those things. I don't know if I mentioned it or even if you want to ask me a question on it, but I, I'm going to talk about it anyway. Um, <laughs> See Me Scotland, who uh, were the sister organisation organization of Time to Change, they, they were all about challenging mental health stigma. And they got in touch with me and said, you know, we'd like to do something with you uh, to change the conversation. And we started a thing called uh, Walk a Mile in My Shoes. Essentially, what we did was I, I discovered that I, I did a lot of social media stuff at the time. And I realised that there was a lot of people um, with mental health issues, problems, maladies, illness, on social media and there were a lot of professionals on social media and there wasn't a lot of crossover so i thought wouldn't it be a, a really great idea to get people together who wouldn't normally walk a mile in each other's shoes and literally get them to walk a mile in each other's shoes so what we did with with see me scotland is we we got some we got some logos done and we got some t-shirts with different colored logos we invited people and on the on the first event something like 800 people bowled up to the royal mile in scotland uh 
in, in Edinburgh, which, spoiler alert, the Royal Mile isn't actually a mile long, but that's another story. So we, we all met up and we just handed out these T-shirts. And what we said to people was, uh, find somebody with a logo of a diff- that's a different colour, a stranger, and walk a mile with that stranger. So punters and professionals didn't know who they were walking with. They had no idea whether they were another professional or a punter. Or, and a lot of professionals were coming out and saying, well, actually, I'm both. So I, I sort, of, sort of straddle that. And it was brilliant. You know, very often with, with charity walks, you know, people are doing it to, to raise money. There was no money being raised here. God bless them. Uh, see me put their hands in their pockets. And, you know, we ended up having something like 30 events all around Scotland. And it involved thousands of people. Uh, and we had walks in schools, universities, uh, in the highlands of Scotland, all around Scotland. You know, people were just having conversations. And, and if people were a bit unsure what to talk about on the day, we would just say to them, look, just ask the other person what brought you here today. And now the wonderful thing about walking a mile is it's 20 minutes. So you're only stuck in a conversation for 20 minutes. So if people felt anxious about being stuck with somebody they they didn't want to spend too much time with, it was, it was going to be 20 minutes. And it was brilliant. Like I say, it was brilliant. You know, nobody was stuck with somebody they didn't want to be stuck with. You know, everybody had a little conversation. So with a lot of these sort of marches, a lot of people are shouting, waving placards. And it was really fascinating to see people walking along the Royal Mile. And it was quiet. It, they were just engaged in conversation with each other. They were just chatting away to people, each other. And it was just... It was breathtaking and lovely and it, and it was um it was just like my walk around the edge of the the uk but just sort of slightly more manufactured and and saying look strangers are great <laughs> you know we, we talk a lot about stranger danger you know but but in these environments it, people are great and i know you know going back to my walk i know i'm coming from a position of white privilege, white male privilege, because I th- I think if perhaps if a, a woman was in my situation, uh, a, a black woman was in my situation, they would have found it more difficult, more threatening. You know, I could be quite imposing looking, and I I don't I'd like to think the reason I wasn't assaulted is because people, you know, were were engaged with the whole thing, but there's a little bit in the back of my thinks you know, I also wasn't you know assaulted because people looked at me and thought they'd come second so that that's a a bit sad but but like I say you know we got people talking and we had loads of these events around Scotland and yeah it was really really lovely Mm. is it we can learn so much about about ourselves from listening to other people you yeah, know, yeah. like it's such a, like in the mental health conversation, it's all based around talking, talking, talking. And I always yeah, think yeah. it's the, it's the listening bit that we need to oh, get good at as well. Right. Yeah. My mum uh, always told me you, you have one mouth and two ears for a reason. <laughs> she was wise. <laughs> she was. Yes. I'm very, very wise indeed. Yeah. And it, it, that conversation, part of that conversation and the words in it was something I wanted to ask, ask you about Chris, because I've heard you talk about this and I've seen you talk about this on the different things is the, the year, the words people use to talk about, um, you know, life and when the, the language around mental health and how you, yeah. you're not overly, um, strict with it. And while it's important to think about the words we use in the context we use them in, yeah, yeah, yeah. we, don't want to become the the police of this stuff, right? I think I think that's that's a really big thing, and I, I, yeah, I have done talks on that, and and you know some of my fe- fellow crazy people don't fully embrace that, and I understand why you know why we're living in a world of prejudice. But you know if, if I'd been a language Nazi walking around the edge of the UK, I would have had 
a lot fewer places to stay. For example, when somebody tells me, but you don't look like one. Hold that thought. That's a conversation we'll have a bit later on. But at the moment, thanks for my tea. And, and then you sort of, you, you, once you've you've got your toe in the door, you, you can then have those conversations. But, you know, I don't care what people call me. And, and I think we've become really lazy with language because we listen to language and we assume that there is malice underneath it. And, and what we're failing to realize is that sometimes people don't have the language that, you know, I have the privilege to know. You know, I, I have a whole bank of political correct language to, to buy into, but the vast majority of the people of the UK don't. So when somebody sort of starts using words like mad and crazy uh, and loony and, and those sorts of things, it, I think it's really important not to dive in on them and say, you know, that language offends me because they're, they're not saying it to offend you 99.9% of the time. They're, they're saying it's because it's the language they've got. And then to imply that somehow they mean you harm or malice or hatred because of it is misguided. I think it's important that we we're open to discussion with people and we can say that some language makes us feel uncomfortable at the same time you know get those conversations started i mean a friend of mine who, who subsequently became a friend of mine after the the the, the walk on um down the royal mile he he was walking with somebody no he wasn't walking with somebody. it was after he'd been walking with somebody he was having a conversation with somebody later on when we 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 met up at this sort of big, big venue. And uh, this person used word like crazy or something. And and he said to them, uh, well, I, I find that language offensive. And he said, they just stopped talking to me. <laughs> they just, that was it. That was the end of the conversation. Uh, I said, and that's not what you wanted, was it? He went, well, no, it wasn't, it wasn't at all. But when you close people down, if you make somebody out to be a bigot uh, when they're clearly not and they're doing their best to sort of have that conversation with you, then you're, you're doing everybody a disservice, I think. Some, one of my favourite quotes actually came from a, a previous guest, someone I recorded sure. with, um, last year, but it's, um, don't call people out, call people in. And the more I think about Ooh, that, I'm going to steal that. It's nice, isn't it? Yeah. So shout out a guy called Chris Hemmings, who does a lot right, of work in um, right. empathy and masculinity. Yeah. Right, um, right. And yeah, and he said that on the episode. And I thought, you know what? Like, it's exactly what you just said. You know, like if we're going to kind of jump on someone, if we we can't say to people, right, come come and talk to us about mental health and illness. Come on, let's all talk about it. Let's raise awareness and then say, oh, but you can only talk about it on my terms and don't get anything wrong. And yeah, people yeah. are so scared. And whether we're talking about mental health, whether we're talking about race, whether we're talking about gender, all the big stuff, all the important yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah. some people are so afraid of getting it wrong that they don't yeah. engage, right? Yeah, and, yeah, and so that's and then nothing changes. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it, and yeah, you're right. Nothing, nothing changes. You know, it is so hard because so many people are experiencing prejudice and hatred and you know hate crimes are up and but it's important not to make to literally tar everybody with the same brush uh and and sort of feel your way and i think people think i'm naive when i describe every you know everybody that i met on my walk as being fantastic but i'm not people were, were brilliant i mean it, it might have helped that you know one i look like a gorilla and two i'm a, a creepy sycophant and uh, so I, I can, I, I'm good at engaging with folk. I, I enjoy talking with folk, which, you know, as far as a BPD diagnosis, really um, you know, doesn't fit the, the criteria, you know, yeah. gets, on, gets on well with others. Well, you can fuck off. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. It's, uh, but yeah, it, 
that that is exactly that and you know i think if we believe that i mean what i did was i uh, i decided to adopt a thought that while i was walking that ev- the next person i was going to meet was going to be the greatest person i'd ever met in my life and that they were going to be fabulous and they were going to enrich my life in some way and and as I went round, that belief grew and grew and grew because people kept on proving me to be right and the good thing about if you hold a positive prejudice because we all prejudge you know we, we are people of we might think our brains are, are massive things you know they hold 2.5 pe- petabytes of in- information but we ain't all that so we we're constantly taking mental shortcuts and and prejudice sadly is one of them so my prejudice was that people were going to be great and they were. So if somebody, if you hold a negative prejudice against somebody and they come to you and they say something that you disagree with, you, the little voice in the back of your head will, will say, ah, see, I knew they were a wanker. But if you're holding a positive prejudice and somebody says something you disagree with, you can think, well, that's just one thing. Or you can think, well, maybe that's out of character for them. You know, that's that's not the whole of them. That's just a, a, a facet of, of who they are. And like I say, it served me very well. Yeah, I love that. I, something I always like to say is that you can only change the world from a place of compassion, right? Yeah. That you, you just never know, even with like little, um, you know, like microaggressions that happen throughout the day, you know, like yeah, yeah. before I was poorly, before I went through this stuff i you know i'd be that guy and you know, i don't know maybe someone cut me up in the car and i'd be oh for fuck's sake oh dickhead and yeah, then yeah and and now someone cuts me up in the car i think oh, i hope they're okay i hope they're yeah. not rushing to the hospital because they've had bad news i hope yeah, yeah, do you know what yeah. sometimes people just make mistakes do you know yeah, what i mean yeah. funny that isn't it you know yeah. like and it's just, it's just uh, changing that mindset it, isn't it that's right you know, I think people aren't, aren't that quick to look at themselves and think, well, obviously I make lots of mistakes and uh, I'd hate to be judged on the worst thing that I ever did all the time, every day, because you'd be afraid to get out of bed, wouldn't you? You really would, mate. Yeah, yeah, you really would. One more thing I really wanted to um, uh, touch on with you, Chris, as well, that I, f- I think is really interesting the way I've heard you talk about it, a little bit different to how I've heard other people talk about it. Sure. And that's this idea of kind of like recovery. There's a whole chapter in your book about kind of like just being OK with the fact that you're not OK. Yeah, and yeah. um and this thing about recovery that there is that kind of pressure to get to a a certain point of of wellness and and yeah, and it yeah. kind of like it adds to the stigma almost sometimes and don't get me wrong with certain aspects of of ill health you know we can get to different points and everyone's different and it's a complicated conversation but i really liked your your take on it and i just wanted to ask you about that if yeah i've kind of developed that since then um I think recovery is a useless word because it doesn't mean anything. And the reason I believe that back in the day when I when I was a social worker, we we had uh, a word that was normalization. And it was for people working with uh, people with learning disabilities and or mental health problems. Now, the thing was, everybody thought they knew what normalization meant. That, that somehow we were making, giving people the opportunity to be normal in society, in the world. You know, you get 100 people in a room, everybody has some different notion as to what normal is. I mean, normalization was slightly better than the previous incarnation of the phrase, which nobody understood. It was a, it was a phrase, social role valorization, which everyone, so, so what the fuck's that? <laughs> so we, we then got normalization, but normalization was ubiquitous. It was absolutely everywhere. Everybody was using it. Normalization, that's a way ahead. Fantastic. And then gradually people were going, it doesn't mean anything, does it? It's the emperor's new underpants. It's, it's, it, it's meaningless. And the thing is, recovery, because it means 
so many different things to so many different people, I'd argue that it is utterly meaningless. I think what happens in, in that kind of vacuum, though, it gets claimed by people who mean to do us harm, by which I mean the Department of Work and Pensions. They want you to be a member of society who contributes to society. And that means you've recovered. Recovered means cured. That means you, you, you can then, you know, move widget A to, to into widget B and, you know, make money for whoever. And that's just, that's not how it works for, for a lot of people. I mean, certainly not for me. You know, I, my relationship with, with work is sketchy, you know, because... I'm crazy. I, I have this dissociation that happens, uh, whether or not I, I want to admit it. You know, I now have uh, type 2 diabetes. I have I have chronic pain because of peripheral neuropathy or, or some GP just recently suggested I might have fibromyalgia. So, and you're Spanish. And I'm Spanish. I mean, how the hell am I going to get? I mean, I'm surprised you can understand me. You must be bilingual. <laughs> so when I'm talking to you, I, you, your people say, well, he sounds like he's recovered. He sounds fine to me. But, you know, if you tried to talk to me yesterday, uh, I think the phrase is, I was fucking fucked. Yeah, I was both mad and unable to get out of bed because of pain. And then this morning, by some kind of fucking miracle, you know, I, I woke up, I've, I've, I mean, I've, I've other symptoms, I've got uh, pins and needles in my hands and feet, and I, well, to be honest, I do have some pain, and I've got, and I've got continuous tinnitus, but I feel hugely better from yesterday than uh, today. So... Recovery is is a useless term. The, the the other thing I'll talk about is that there was a a job that I recently applied for. It was uh, with the NHS as a, a knowledge and understanding framework trainer, uh, and basically it was people uh, with a lived experience of mental ill health going into the NHS and telling the NHS not to be horrible to people with a label of personality disorder. That's the job. Now, the job that I was applying for was I'd be managing people and recruiting people who'd also be doing that. So I'd be creating sort of the, the training courses and I'd be employing people. And when I got talking to the people who you know I was, I was applying to the job for, I, I said to them, so what reasonable adjustments are you making? You know, because you're going to be working with staff who have uh, severe and enduring mental health problems. They mumbled something about human resources. Basically, you know, obviously, you, you, you have to take time off sick. And I was like, no, no, if I was a wheelchair user, hopefully you'd be thinking in terms of accessibility. And I'd like to think that you are able to consider similar accessibility for somebody who's bonkers and it was like I'd invited her on a trip to the moon on a unicycle because she, she couldn't fathom it she wanted somebody who was recovered in her view somebody who wasn't ill in her view um, somebody who, who wouldn't require adjustments because I had to be one of them I had to you know I had to have my I had to be waving my master's degree my professional qualifications to show how much I was like them whilst my lived experience was a thing of the past so I could talk about it from the past but I couldn't talk about what it's like now and it was it was the weirdest thing it drove drove me a little bit nuts I've got to say because it it made me realize that, that there was going to be no match up I mean, hopefully the knowledge and understanding framework employees around the country. I mean, there's been a lot of money pumped into this. Certainly Warwickshire, 11 million pounds has been pumped into it for the for the next three years. But hopefully around the rest of the country, they're doing it a bit better. But I have a feeling they're not. So, you know, this great opportunity that they had 
they're employing people they believe are recovered or cured or and and because of that i think there are a lot of people saying i'm cured when perhaps maybe they're not and and they're just putting themselves they're making themselves vulnerable in these difficult difficult sort of situations so you know i think recovery is is harmful you know in that context yeah definitely and it's like a horrible idea the fact that people feel that they have to be in a place that they're not just to be able to kind of have a normal life and do the stuff that everyone else gets to do right like yeah, it's yeah. not um it's not accommodating i, lo- I love the, the comparison there that you used about the wheelchair because we compare mental health to physical health all the time but um maybe not on that deeper level you know if we're going to look at it like that we have to look at all aspects of the physical and mental comparison well now that you mention that it was, it was interesting that you know i i got referred to um uh, mental health service community mental health services at a time when i was a risk to myself I'd say my life was in danger. I was on a waiting list for just over two years, which was unacceptable. Thankfully, an organization called Safeline uh, in this area who work with people who've been sexually abused when they were children, um, they, they, they picked up that slack and fuck, they were brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, so when I got my physical illness, my um, diabetes, within two weeks, I was seeing a, a specialist uh, the argument being it's a life-threatening condition. Uh, and in no time I was seeing a specialist, I was seeing a, I was on a course, I was getting all the support. And I, the, the uh, diabetes nurse uttered some words that I'd never heard as somebody with a, a label of personality disorder. And that was, contact me anytime. I thought, fucking hell, this is, this is crazy. I, I got all these, this in, incredible support. So even with, you know, when my GP finally decided that my tinnitus needed some kind of action they referred me to audiology and within a week you know I've got an appointment to see an audiologist and that's not life-threatening so with life-threatening mental health stuff I had to wait two years and yet with something that is a fucking pain in the ass but you know not threatening my life you know, I'm, I'm seeing somebody in two weeks. So, you know, that, that, that disparity between, you know, physical health and mental health is, is, is real. And, you know, it's, it's kind of ongoing. Yeah, definitely. It's a lot to, um, a lot to think about eh, when you put it in those, in those terms, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very much so. So what's, um, what have you got going on for you now, mate? What's, uh, uh, what's on the cards? Well, I had really good um, counseling and it took me to a place where, I've never been before. I, you know, I'd, I'd argue I, I, I'm more sane now than I've been for years. It doesn't make me productive in the sense of, um, you know, what the world would want. And uh, you know, when I applied for that job, you know, they didn't even interview me, which was amazing. But so it made me realise I, I have to kind of carve my own way. So I'm like somebody who's just left school thinking at the ripe old age of 57, thinking, you know, what am I going to be when I grow up? That one and a half years with, with Safeline has, has been absolutely life-changing. So I've, I've gradually boiled it down and boiled it down. And, and I think my future lies in working on podcasts, but also developing them into a show. Now, I've done a couple of shows in the past, and I've, you know, I've been involved in a couple of films in the past. But with this, I don't know if you've heard of Vagina Monologues. Mm, yes, I have, yeah. So Vagina Monologues, Great thing, women talking about their lady front parts and uh, talking about what it's like to be a woman in society. And, and I thought, right, 
we haven't done that as men. You know, we, we are in a position where we, we talk about privilege and, and you know, we there is white male privilege. But but that white male privilege, I think, only applies to a very small percent of white males. And we're, we're failing to recognise that men are in absolute crisis in the UK. Uh, I don't know what it's like in the rest of the world, but we are in ab- absolute crisis. Three quarters of the people who take their own lives are men. 95% of the prison population are men. 95% of the people who are involved in fatal, who, who, who criminally cause fatal car accidents are men. Rape is up. Physical abuse, domestic violence is up. We need to be talking about these things. And, and a lot of men will say, it's not me, mate. I, you know, I'm not an abuser. I'm not a rapist. In England and Wales last year, there were 130 rapes. 100, sorry, 130,000 rapes. And of those, 0.6 of a percent got to court. So if you're a rapist, you have roughly a one in 200 chance of going to court. The Rape, rape Crisis Centre have quite rightfully said, you know, we, we've effectively decriminalised rape because... You know, if a one in 200 chance of going to court. So that's not even, you know, anyway. So last year, there are 850,000 episodes of domestic violence reported to the police. God knows how many more uh, are happening with people without people reporting. So we're in a mess. The, the, the other thing is men are, after a game of football, men are 26% more likely to abuse their partner if the team wins or draws. If the team loses, they are 39% more likely to abuse their partner. So this isn't a football problem. It's a men problem. But men need to talk about it. We need to be talking about it. So off the back of all this, I'm doing a series of podcasts. I'm going to interview as many men as I, I can because, you know, I don't want to be a sample size of one. And I'm, I, I've interviewed two men so far. One, a guy my age, and one guy who's about uh, 15 years younger than me. But I want to talk to men who are 18 years old and up. Uh, about where we fit into the world, you know, and how we can change things. Bad things are happening on our watch. We, you know, it's all well and good, like I said, it, us saying, well, it's not me. But, you know, with all that abuse and violence going on, we must know somebody who is a domestic abuser and or a rapist or a sexual abuser. We, we must know these people. We need to be calling this out. We need to be calling people out. So, so this this thing that I'm talking about is the penis dialogues. So I want us to be talking about that kind of stuff. I want to be talking about all that and things like addiction and uh, problem gambling, that kind of that kind of thing. I also want to talk about male privilege. You know that ninety percent of CEOs are men. Only a third of MPs are women, and that's in the, the lower house and the upper house. We need to be talking about this in total. So I would do load of po- podcasts until I get bored doing those podcasts, and then I'm going to condense it into a show and hopefully start off in my hometown, my old hometown of, of Corby, and and do a small show there and try and engage men in a conversation and 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 you know, started off, but we, we men are in crisis. And I, I can't say that loud enough and often enough. We're, we're, we're in an absolute mess and, and we really need to do something. Yeah, that, that sounds wonderful. That sounds really, really cool. And like, I think it would be fascinating, not only just like pulling the, the content together, but then the bit where you try and get people to engage with it. And that yeah, yeah. The, the reasons why people want to, and particularly 
are reluctant to that would be fascinating and uh create more content in itself i would imagine but uh, yeah that yeah sounds lovely and i'll um yeah i'll definitely be keeping my eyes out for that mate that sounds a wonderful wonderful thing chris that's been a pleasure mate i've enjoyed today immensely thank you so much for coming on mate that was brilliant to meet you absolutely great talking to you i really appreciate you having me on oh mate thank you very much cheers thanks a lot Tom. Big up to that proper mental podcast. A proper mental podcast. <laughs>